Well, good morning. It is good to be together, to worship together as a church body. Uh, This is my first time back in the pulpit since having a sabbatical, so it's been a few months for me, and this is exciting uh, to get to open God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter one. As Chad said, my name is Nate. I'm one of the staff pastors here at Restoration Road Church. And uh, I'm excited to open God's Word together. Hebrews chapter 1. Last week, uh, Mike launched our 24-week sermon series in the, in the book of Hebrews. And uh, as Chad said, pick up a study guide. There's been uh, multiple contributors, a part of this study guide, to help enhance our study of Hebrews. But from the very beginning, I have a confession to make. I've preached through, over the last 13 years of full-time pastoral ministry, I've preached through many of the New Testament books, not Hebrews. And there's a reason for that. Hebrews is quite intimidating to me. Hebrews, uh, I find myself with a healthy dose of intimidation when I come to the book of of Hebrews, uh, largely because uh, Hebrews is so complex. One commentator said, Hebrews is like not just one puzzle that you're trying to put the puzzle pieces. It's like multiple puzzles stacked on top of each other. And you're trying to determine, does this piece go with this puzzle or does this piece go with another puzzle down here? And you're sorting through it. Uh, But it is a wonderful letter. And so I hope this study guide is a help as we go through this to help kind of sort out the different puzzle pieces within the book of Hebrews. I'm excited to explore the depths of this letter. And as I said, I have a healthy sense of apprehension toward this letter. And as I was kind of preparing for this and thinking like, how do I describe how I feel about this letter? One story came to mind very quick. As a kid, uh, I've always been fascinated by raptors, by birds of prey. And as a kid, we uh, lived out in the country and we had uh, red-tailed hawks that were in our backyard quite often flying overhead. We had fields. Well, one day, this red-tailed hawk flew really low and landed on our fence post. So I thought, I am going to go pet this bird. <laughs> so my younger, I, I talked my younger brother into coming down with me and we went down and uh, I remember this, this huge, magnificent bird was just sitting on the fence post, and I am like walking towards this thing, arms stretched out, like I'm going to pet this, this hawk. And uh, I, I remember, amazingly, the bird allowed me to get within a few feet of it, but I remember being somewhat terrified, aware that this could end very poorly, but yet drawn by the awe of this creature. And there was an emotional mix of exhilaration and trepidation at the same time. And I remember my heart pounding as as I inched toward it until it finally flew away and my hopes were dashed. Honestly, that describes how I feel approaching Hebrews. There's an exhilaration because there's so much here, so much gems to be discovered within the book of Hebrews. But yet there's also some trepidation because there's so much here. And I just want to be faithful not to spill anything as I, as I bring God's word. Hebrews is rich with Old Testament allusions and pictures, direct quotations. There's some, some are around 35 direct quotations from the Old Testament 
in Hebrews, but yet what burns as the central heat and light within Hebrews, it was what this whole letter encircles is the Son, Jesus Christ. Regarding Hebrews, theologian, pastor, and reformer John Calvin wrote this. He said, quote, There is indeed no book in the Holy Scriptures which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ, so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death, and so abundantly treats of the use of ceremonies, and, in a word, so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law. Calvin had a very high view of Scripture and a very high view of the book of Hebrews. And may we find great joy and slight fear as we approach the book of Hebrews. And may this sermon series enlarge our view of the supremacy of Christ over all things. I was talking to, maybe I said this already in the sermon, but multiple puzzle pieces. Did I already say that? Okay, good. I already said it. I was ahead of myself. (laughs) The statements made in verses one through four, which Mike opened up with last week, uh, really are are, uh, what our our author of Hebrews does in the rest of chapter one uh, is, is give proof text in the Old Testament for the statements he made in verses one through four. Uh, really to demonstrate from the Old Testament how Jesus, the Son, truly and fully man, as priest king of the eternal kingdom, is supreme. He is supreme over all things. Today we're going to focus in on his introductory argument of how Jesus is supreme over the angels. That Jesus is truly and fully man, that he is truly and fully God, and that Jesus alone shall be worshipped. And so let us get into God's word. We will read verses 5 through 14, and then come back, and I'll teach on it. Read with me God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is God's word. May we find ourselves in submission and under the authority of God's word. 
So the author of Hebrews begins his letter to the church with an argument about Jesus's supremacy over angels. And so it, it begs the question, why angels? Why at the beginning of his letter does he need to hit angels? And he will throughout the letter as well. So what's going on with that? And, and what is the significance uh, for us? It is possible that there was a misunderstanding about angelic beings and their purpose within the original audience. But the fact that Hebrews speaks of angels in a positive light challenges the claim that he's addressing some false angel worship within the church. What seems more likely to me uh, and what's most probable is due to rising persecution among the church at this point, the exhortation throughout the letter to resist the temptation to turn back to Judaism, that Jewish Christians are being tempted to return to the old covenant. They're being pressured by their Jewish neighbors to return into Judaism. They're being pressured by the Roman government. Uh, see, what was happening at this time, the Roman perspective on Christianity early on was it was just a division or a sect of Judaism. Judaism in the Roman kingdom was a recognized and tolerated religion. Christianity, not so much. And so as the separation began to be more evident that Christianity is not just a form of Judaism, then Rome began viewing it as a cult. And it was no longer under the recognized religions, therefore it was no longer tolerated. And so Christians were starting to become greatly persecuted under the Roman Empire. And if you study history much at all, you will, uh, you will be familiar with a very great leader, that's sarcasm, uh, by the name of Nero, that was the height uh, for much of the persecution at this time, uh, persecuting Christians, sacrificing them. And so there was pressure from the outside government, the pagan government, Roman government, to to walk away from Christianity on the church, there was pressure from their fellow Jews to return to synagogue, to again be under the umbrella of Judaism. And it seems to me that, that through the argumentation of Hebrews, that there was this temptation that was put before these young Christians. Stop saying that Jesus, this is the temptation, stop saying that Jesus is God. Just say he's an angelic being. That's okay. You can, you can step back under the umbrella of Judaism if you just stop declaring that Jesus is God. And so right from the get-go, the author of Hebrews is gonna, is gonna attack that false thinking right away. And he's saying, no, 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 brothers and sisters, Jesus is supreme. This will be the thread that we see all throughout the book of Hebrews. He will take many of the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament imagery, many of the Old Testament ideas, and he'll say, nope, Jesus is better. No, you remember, you remember the tabernacle, this place of worship that was awesome for us in the wilderness and God's presence came and filled, nope, Jesus is better. You remember the Ark of the Covenant that represented God's presence that all other nations, uh, gods fell down before, you know, Jesus is better. This is the argument of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. What a great message for us today. It's something my heart needs to hear. Because there are many temptations in our lives today to turn our attention away from the supremacy of Christ. Circumstances, 
suffering, pain, distractions, success. You know, actually, if you read through the history of Israel, success was a bigger distraction to them than suffering was because they started thinking, I got this. And they lost sight, the supremacy of God over all things. And so the plea from Hebrews that we'll see consistently through his letter, but primarily here toward the topic of angels, is is he's saying, brothers, the Son is supreme. Why turn to anything else? Everything else is a shadow or a copy of what, what finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so he lays his argument out for the supremacy of Christ. And in so doing, pleads with his readers, don't return to superstition. Don't return to empty ritual. Don't return to good things that were meant to be temporal guardians. But keep your eyes on the ultimate fulfillment of Christ, Jesus, the Son, truly and fully man, as priest king of an eternal kingdom, is supreme. He is supreme to all things. But to angels, he is supreme. He is truly and fully God, and he alone shall be worshiped. And so we come to verse five, and he says, to which of the angels did God ever say? And I think it is good for us to maybe uh, dive into a little bit of our understanding of what are angels according to what we're given in scripture. Um, So answering that question, what are angels? Angels are mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament and more than 160 times in the New Testament. So what are angels? Angels are created spiritual beings. They're often invisible until revealed. And there's gonna be a lot of text that I'm going to give you. If you want to write them down, that's fine. I can also, if you, also, hey, Nate, there's a bunch of verses that you gave us that were pointing. Can you just email that to me? I'm happy to do that. Just shoot me an email uh, at some point this week and I'll, I'll send these to you. But these are all portions in scripture that give us examples of what I'm talking about. And so angels are invisible until they're revealed. Numbers 22, 31 is an instance, Balaam and his talking donkey. You might remember that uh, from, from Flannel Graph uh, uh, Children's, Children's Church. Uh, Balaam and his donkey, there was an angel that he didn't see that was blocking his way until God revealed it to him. Uh, 2 Kings 6, chapter 6, specifically verse 17, is another account that there were a whole army, a host of angels that, that Elisha's servant didn't see. As the, Elisha looked up on the hill and he saw the Syrian army that had surrounded them and he thought, uh-oh, this is not going to end well. And Elisha, Elisha the prophet said, oh God, open his eyes, let him see what's really going on here. And what was, visi- what was invisible became visible to him and he went... <laughs> Sweet. God's got this. So we see examples of invisible, but when the angels were visible, often they were mistaken for humans, for men. We see that example in Genesis 18, where Abraham entertains uh, angels. Genesis 19, uh, Mark 16, 5. Other times we see in scripture, they're they're, uh, represented as shining lights, as in Matthew 28 or Luke chapter 2. And sometimes also in scripture, magnificent winged creatures, Exodus 25 and Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's call where he sees a glimpse of heaven and he sees these angelic creatures flying around the throne room of God. 
saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Angels are created beings that are bound by time. They had a beginning. Uh, time being a succession of events. Unlike God, who is not bound by time, angels move from one event to the next, much like us as created beings. They are spiritual, but they are not divine. They are not God. And that's largely the argument of the Hebrews, author, author of Hebrews here. Angels are not God, but the Son is God. Likewise, as not God, they are not to be worshipped, but the Son is to be worshipped. Example, more so that the Son is God. See, angels are only messengers. The Hebrew word and the Greek word that are used, uh, that we translate into angel for English, it just means messenger. Psalm 103, verse 20, gives us an example of angels worshiping the Lord. See, they're not to be worshiped, but they were created to worship God. Psalm 103, 20 says, Bless the Lord, you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. We see examples of that in Job 38, Isaiah 6 again, and Revelations 4 and 5. Angels were created to worship God and to serve God, not to be worshipped. And so let's look a little bit about what angels are to do according to Scripture. What is their role? As I said, that the, the, the Hebrew word and the Greek word means messenger. They are to communicate God's message to man. Acts chapter 7, a beautiful portion of Scripture where Stephen is, is, is laying out the history of redemption. He's laying out the history of Israel as he's, as he's moving toward what Jesus fulfilled. And in Acts 7, verses 37, 38, and again in 53, Stephen says this. He says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me for your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And again in 53, he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Part of Stephen's argument, a larger argument, he points out that angels were involved in bringing God's message of the law to his people. They were the messengers to deliver God's message. We see also their role is to deliver uh, details about future events. Daniel chapter 10, Revelation 17, 21, 22, Luke chapter 1. All examples of angels coming to declare something God was going to do. In addition to communicating God's messages to men, angels are also ministers. They're ministers to believers. We see that in Psalm 34 and Psalm 91. It talks about angels encamping around those who fear God as, as a protection. We see angels in Acts chapter 5 and again in chapter 12. They, angels were active in delivering uh, believers from prison. We see in Luke 15 that angels rejoice at the salvation of sinners. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that angels are present in the church. 
So angels are ministers sent to aid and help believers in this life. The final role that we see in text, in, in scripture uh, of angels is, is that they are eschatological agents. They are agents that bring about the end of things. They're involved in the final earthly judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the angels will sound the trumpet, which will call forth the elect. Matthew 13, Jesus says that angels will separate the wheat from the chaff. He talks about separating out believers from false believers. Revelation 19, Revelation 20, uh, verses 3 and 10 in Revelation 20, all talk about these roles that angels play at the end times. They're opening seals, they're blowing trumpets, they're pouring out God's wrath, and so they have a role to play at the end times. It is little surprise that angels were given an elevated place of reverence in Jewish thought. This is a brief overview of the role angels have had in the history of God's people. And so we should not be surprised when, when we come to the opening of Hebrews and that there was this idea of an, of an elevated position for angels. I mean, look at almost every example of people having an encounter with angels. It wasn't like, oh man, this is awesome. It was like, I'm gonna die, <laughs> right? They were terrifying. The author of Hebrews makes this strong point as theologian Schreiner points out. He says this, since the son is superior to angels, since he is divine and rules over all, why would the readers consider returning to a revelation, the Mosaic law, mediated by angels? Even though angels have been a large part of what, what was happening in the history of redemption, Hebrews is reminding his readers they are not God. The Son is fully and truly God. Angels are not to be worshiped. They are created to serve the church. Christ is to be worshiped, for he is the Son. And this is where the argument leads as we go through the, the following verses. The, the majority of his argument, he is showing how the Son is fully and truly human, fulfilling all of these Old Testament prophecies, and that the Son is fully and truly God. And he begins by pointing out the true humanity of Christ, by saying that it was of the Son that was prophesied, you are my Son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What these two texts uh, this, this is from Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. These are both tied to the kingship of David, to the Davidic covenant. These were texts originally given through David or to David that were looking forward to a fulfillment that would happen later than David's life. It was a fulfillment we see specifically in 2 Samuel where that I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me, where that text comes from. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, specifically verses 12 through four, uh, 16, we see that, that, that uh, this is a messianic passage that points forward to what God would do through David's line. 
that this Messiah that would come would be a descendant of David. He would be truly human, but not only human. We see the fulfillment of this, this eternal kingdom. We'll look at, at this portion of text uh, here in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. Uh, these are promises that God gives to David. He says, I will raise up from your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. In verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's an eternal kingdom. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. This is our quote, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's an eternal element that was given in this Davidic prophecy that there would be a king that would come from David's line whose kingdom would know no end. Now, if you know Israel's history much, David's kingdom was fractured. His son rebelled against him. He was, it was a tumultuous reign. Solomon's kingdom literally was fractured as the northern tribes separated from the southern tribes and became two tribes, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And we see that, that although, if you read through First and Second Kings, at the end of 2 Kings, it's tracing through uh, the fall of Israel. Israel goes away. The kings, the, the line of David did not go through the northern kingdom. The line of David stayed with the southern kingdom. And there is hope at the end. You read through kingdom, uh, Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, and that's a lot of bad news. <laughs> a lot of kings that did not follow the Lord. But at the very end of 2 Kings, the writer of 2 Kings says, Hey, listen, but David's king in his line, he was released from prison and he was given a king's ration as they were in exile. And what this is pointing to is saying, look, David's line is still continuing. That promise that God gave to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of that king that would come, that would be an eternal kingdom, it's still alive. That promise still remains. There's hope. For God's people. And what the author of Hebrews is pointing to here as he references these two Old Testament texts is listen, that hope that we were all looking for in a king that would have no end, it is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So why would you return to a religion that's still searching for that king when I tell you he has come? His kingdom is eternal. So these two Old Testament references are referencing the humanity of Christ, that Jesus is truly and fully human. We'll see that play out through the rest of the book as we talk about Jesus as, as a mediator, as a priest representing his people. When we look in chapter 7 of Jesus and the line of Melchizedek, as he is, he is a priest of a different line, not under the line of Aaron, but he is a priest sent to redeem and sanctify his people as he is a king sent to establish God's kingdom, which has no end. 
And so verses 7 through 12, he shifts his argument from showing how Jesus is truly and fully human to showing how the Son is truly and fully God. Different from angels. He says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The angels, like the elements, fire and wind, what does that evoke? In us, well, for the original audience, it would evoke the Exodus, where God led them by a pillar of fire and the wind opened the sea. Oh, yeah, just as the elements were under the control and submission of God, so are the angels under the control and submission of God as created beings. They are created by God to accomplish his purposes. But in verse 6, he says, and again, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And what what the argument is shifting to is he's showing Jesus is separate. He is supreme over these angels because it is not angels that we are called to worship. It is God and God alone. And Jesus is fully and truly God. He deserves our worship. Even the angels will worship him, do worship him. The eternal son was present, we see next, at creation. His throne has no end. Again, talking of that Davidic line, that prophecy that was given to David in verse eight, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is contrasting the kingdoms of the world that led by tyranny and not by righteousness. And so it's contrasting these kingdoms that have been been over Israel in their past, the ruling kingdom that's over Israel now, that all of these kingdoms will fade away, but God's kingdom that's established in righteousness and God's king, which is the son, his rule will never end. His reign is eternal. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And his argument shifts then to the eternal nature of the Son. And he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Creation, all created things, they had a beginning. Christ had no beginning. John chapter one begins his beautiful gospel with this this argument. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. All things were created through him and for him. Creation is bound in time, a succession of events. Angels, all things, move from event to event. But God is outside of time. Jesus is God. God's enemies are subdued. He is king. Angels, his servants. We see the central truth all throughout this text, that Jesus, the Son, is truly and fully man as the priest king of of an eternal kingdom, and he is supreme. Supreme to all things, but particularly in chapter one, supreme to angels. 
because he is truly and fully God, and he alone shall be worshiped. Worshiping Jesus is precisely what separates Christianity from every other religion. The true Christian will join the angels to worship Jesus. When we gather together, we worship Jesus for who he is and what he has done. In fact, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, spoke of this, this kind of worship that he is looking for. Particularly in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, Jesus talked about worshiping uh, as, as he was asked by a scribe, you'll see it on the text, he's asked by a scribe uh, to test him how much he knew the law, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus replied, if you go to the next slide, Jake, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he talks about the centrality of God, that God is one and to be worshiped. And then Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He says the second commandment is that love that you have for the Lord should change the way you interact with your neighbors. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater, no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus speaks to worship, which evokes a question for us today. Do you worship Jesus? Do you wholly worship Jesus? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it is to that question that I would like to focus the end of our time together on, because I think that is the central theme of the book of Hebrews, particularly of this passage in chapter one. Are you worshiping Jesus? Do you place Jesus as highest in your life over you? Do you wholly worship Christ with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? So what does Jesus mean by that? Let's, let's, let's look at this for a moment. Do you wholly worship Jesus with your heart? Do you serve and worship Christ with your inmost being, the inner part of, of you that few people see, including your emotions, your aspirations, your dreams, your desires, those things that you rarely share with other, others? Are they submitted to the lordship of Christ? Does reading God's word stir your emotions? Are you stirred by the movement of God in others' lives? Are you stirred when you pray? It is not all about seeking an emotional experience. If that is what you are looking for, your, your aim is off. But when we see God at work, it ought to stir our emotions. We ought to respond. And it's different for all of us. For me, I stand in the cascades and I look at what God did with one word. And it, it, it causes me to realize how small I am and that's a good thing. And how glorious he is and it stirs my emotions. It evokes something in me. 
when I open God's word and I see his truth that's been preserved through generations, it stirs something in me. Does it you? Do you long to know Christ, to be like Christ, more than the air that fills your lungs, food that satisfies your hunger, water that quenches your thirst? In other words, is Jesus most valuable to you? Do you worship him with your whole heart? What about our soul? Jesus said that we worship him wholly. It includes our soul. What does he mean by that? Do we trust Christ with the current state and the eternal state of our soul? Do you trust God with your future? Are you aware of his presence in every circumstance? Do you trust him when life doesn't go how you planned, hoped, or expected? Do you still say, God, what come what may, you are still good. Though I may not see it right now, I know you are faithful and true. Do you love Jesus with your soul? What about your mind? Do you worship Jesus with your mind, your intellect? Are you growing in your knowledge of God through his word? Knowledge enhances our affections. Are you using the gifts that God has given you? Are you giving him glory and honor when those gifts are used? Is the credit in your heart and outward God's alone? With our minds, when we grow in our intellect, is, it, is the credit the Lord's or is it yours? Are your thoughts submitted to the Lordship of Christ? Or does your mind wander, to wander into self-centered gratification, sinful lust, and pride? Do you serve and worship Jesus with your mind? And finally, Jesus says, with your strength. Worshiping Christ involves our strength. Are your resources spent for the sake of the gospel as worship unto Christ? We may be tempted to view worship categorically. Worship is Sunday mornings when I sing or I pray. It, it fits in this nice little box. That is not the picture that Scripture paints of worship. That's not the picture that Jesus gives of serving and worshiping God in Mark chapter 12. It's not a box in our life. It is all of us. All, every area of our life submitted to the Lordship of Christ, giving glory to God in heart and mind, soul, strength. It's this picture of all of you saying, God, you are amazing. And there is nothing more valuable in my life than you. Worship is far greater than just singing. It can be singing, but it is not exclusively singing. Worship is about our disposition, recognizing our position and God's position. It's that moment when you look out, for me, when I look out at the mountains and I go, God, with one word, you did this times the earth. Oh yeah, not just the earth, because that's just one little ball in the midst of the heavens. 
That's why Psalms many times says, look toward the heavens. See the majesty and glory of God. Far more than just a red-tailed hawk, right? <laughs> I don't know if you saw earlier this week that there's a new telescope that, that uh, can look in more, higher definition into the, the stars. Man is being able to see God's handiwork with more detail and precision, and guess what? It is glorious. And our God spoke that with a word. <laughs> Do we stand in awe of him? Are we using our heart our soul, our mind, and our strength to worship the Son. You see, when we worship Jesus rightly, and this is the argument of Hebrews here today, listen, don't redirect your worship towards something that is unworthy of your worship. God alone is worthy of our worship. The Son is truly and fully God. Therefore, he is worthy of our worship. Worship him. But when we worship Jesus rightly, he gives us a right perspective. On this life, on events, on pain and suffering, on success. In other words, when Jesus is in his rightful place, we will view this life in its rightful place. We will view ourselves rightly, our possessions rightly. When Jesus is in his rightful place, we even view death rightly. Consider this as I close from a sermon given by Puritan preacher of the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, where he writes this, quote, death to the true Christian is an entrance into eternal pleasures and unspeakable joys. But the death of a sinner is his entrance into never-ending miseries. This world is all the hell that ever a true Christian is to endure. And it is all the heaven that unbelievers shall ever enjoy. It is a heaven in comparison of the misery of the one and a hell in comparison of the happiness of the other. This is a very profound statement, and it points to our worship. When we worship Jesus rightly, our perspective on this life is different. Our perspective on others, it changes. Our engagement in the mission, the reason why God has left his people here is so that we would boast of the works of Christ to others who in this life is all the heaven they will experience unless we do our job and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that brings up another question. What about you? Do you worship Jesus? Have you responded to the good news of the gospel in your life? I do not care if you have been at church since you were this high. Being in church doesn't save you. And I love the, the quote from G.K. Chesterton that says, being in church does not make you Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Worshiping Jesus is your life a reflection of worship to Christ. Heart, soul, mind, strength.
if you have not responded to the gift of the gospel. And the gospel screams loudly. It does not matter the, the, the great accomplishments you have in your life. They're not good enough to save you. That is the story of the Old Testament. But God knew that, and he planned for it. And the accomplishments of Christ is enough. Another thing we'll see in Hebrews. So have you responded to the beauty of the gospel? There's no magic words to say. It is just responding to Jesus, acknowledging our need for him, and turning to him in repentance and faith. And if you have not done that today, I would plead with you to turn to Christ, place your trust and faith in Jesus, because as the book of Hebrews will show us, Jesus the Son, he's the priest king of the eternal kingdom. He is supreme to all things supreme over angels because he is truly God and he alone will be worshiped. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, we come to you. God, we are grateful for your word and we ask that your word would do its work in us. God, our desire is not to be better versions of ourselves. Our desire is to resemble and reflect you. And so I pray that you would break down all that is in our hearts that is tied to our selfish nature. Your word would work in us, that you would make us more like you, and that we would respond in worship and awe adoration of who you are and what you have done. We pray these things in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.